one of the main things that we always talk to our clients about is their self-talk. I mean, you know, we all talk to ourselves all the time in our heads, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Continual monologue, you know? So the, the great thing to help people understand is that you can bring that monologue to your conscious awareness and manage it. And what happens when we don't bring it to our conscious awareness, it just kind of runs us. So we, we, if, we, if we're not conscious of it, we just believe it. We just take it as truth. So like, for instance, let's say you're a manager and you have somebody who works for you, and this is even more interesting, who comes to you and tells you that they think something that you're doing isn't right. And let's say that your first reaction mentally, you don't say this out loud, you just sit there and kind of nod, but inside you say, what the hell do you know? I'm your manager. You shouldn't even be saying that stuff to me, right? You're saying this and you believe it because it's your own voice in your head. So what I always encourage people to do is like, wait, when somebody tells you something you don't want to hear, notice what you're saying to yourself and then choose to say something else. Hello, my name is Emily Jansen, and this is the Leadership is Female podcast. We interview women in the sports and entertainment businesses to teach you the tips and the mindset that will get you to the top faster. Marion Wright Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. Let's bring visibility to women who are crushing it in their roles. Join us week after week, season after season, as we reach back to extend a hand to pull you forward. We will lead you forward because leadership is female. To the Leadership is Female podcast, Erica Anderson, we are so excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Erica Anderson. I, my professionally, I guess the most important thing about my identity is that I started uh, the company, Proteus International, in 1990. So it's been 33 years and I'm kind of semi-retired. My partners are running it and I'm just the kind of gray eminence internally. And uh, now I'm off to do new things. <laughs> yeah, uh, you are living part-time in Spain, which we were talking about before we started. And I think all of us probably have that uh, adventure as a long-term goal for us. But I want to go back in time first and talk about how you got there from Florida State to leading Proteus for the past 33 years, which is a coaching, consulting, and training firm focused uniquely on supporting leaders to get ready and stay ready. You also in that role are an advisor for CEOs and top executives from some companies we've probably heard of like Amazon, Spotify, Revolt Media, Charter Spectrum, and the Yale School of Public Health. So how did you get there? It's a a long journey. Maybe we can't uh, do the whole thing, but give us those cliff notes so we can understand your career trajectory and how you were so successful. Well, thank you. So I love that question. And uh, I, I'll, I'll hone in on one year where I think is the most important part of my uh, professional origin story. So in the late 90s, I was working as the head of instructional design for a company that did management training. And I started thinking that I wanted to do my own thing. And the reason was because I saw that, remember, this is, you know, late 80s, 35 years ago that most 
people when they came to companies that did leadership development, those kinds of things, they really treated it like a widget, like give me three of these and two of these. And I thought that's not really, I don't want, I don't want to do that, you know? And so I realized that what I wanted to be was what has come to be called over the last 35 years, a business partner. That really wasn't a term of art at the time, but that's what I wanted to be. And I wanted to help clients, individuals and their organizations on their journey. So I started talking to a friend of mine, a guy I worked with who ended up being my mentor and me starting, starting Proteus in 1990 and was my business partner for the first two years. And he said to me, so what is your purpose? What, what would you say is the mission of this company that you want to create? And I said, I want to help people clarify and move toward their hope for future. And he said, okay, done. That's it. Let's do it. And with some slight tweaks, that has been the mission of Proteus for the last 35 years. And so that holds so much. It, it just implies we're going to be with you. We're going to help you figure out what is that future you want to create for yourself? And then what tools do we have that we can bring to bear to help you achieve that future that you want for yourself? Can you share with us the greatest story of impact? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Well, I'll do two brief ones. One that's a personal, that's about an individual and one that's about an organization. So the one about the individual is there was this guy that I coached. This was probably... 15 years ago, incredibly smart guy and just was wreaking havoc as a manager, just making people cry, people hate working for him. It was desperate. And both his manager and the head of HR thought this guy has a lot of potential. He just has to stop getting in his own way. And so we had this wonderful coaching engagement where he ended up being he, he was very open to feedback. He's like, yep, I know I'm screwing up, you know? And so what we were able to do was get into his mindset. Like, what are you assuming about being a manager? And the main assumption he was making was people should just do what I tell them. And I said to him, is that how you operate? You just do what your manager tells you? And he, it was great. He just stopped and said, no, actually, he really tries to get my buy-in. and He really uses my voice. Oh, oh, okay. And it was like this big door just opened up in his mind, right? And as soon as his mindset started to shift, then there was room to teach him the skills. Okay, I'm going to teach you how to listen better. I'm going to teach you how to delegate better. I'm going to teach you how to give feedback better. It was amazing. I mean, he, he, you know, it wasn't like he changed who he was. He, he was still very driven and very goal-oriented, but he he just shifted that thing in him that wasn't understanding how he needed to deal with other human beings in order to build a team and build their, their collaboration with him, right? And so I remember, I, I it seemed to me like he was really making changes, but I knew I needed to talk to his people. So he was in LA, I was in New York, so, but I was visiting LA. And so he said, I, I, I think I've made these changes. He was so sweet. I think I've made these changes, but I want you to talk to some of my folks, right? So I talked to his main, his this woman who was like his second in command. And I just didn't ask any leading questions. I said, so what do you think? What do you think about David's coaching process? And she said the greatest thing. She said, he's like David 2.0. He's like himself, but just so much better. <laughs> so that, I love that story. <laughs> That's such a great one. And I, I think that we all see a David in some point of our career who 
is making these assumptions about management. And what you said there was, you know, you're assuming that people are just going to do everything that, that you say they're going to do. And then he had this aha moment and it left me wondering like, how important do you think they're like third party coaching or in your case, you know, you talk about it as partnership, but someone outside of your business helping to make those breakthroughs with your team versus um, all internal coaching, like with staff you already have? I I think it's really important. In fact, one of the books I wrote uh, is called Be Bad First. It's about how to be a great learner, how to be a master learner. And we talk about how one of the things that's critical to be a, a really good learner, a master learner, I used Michelangelo as my example throughout the book, is to have what we've come to call neutral self-awareness, where you really see yourself accurately. And part of that you can get by continually questioning your assessments of yourself. Like when you, you know, just in your mental monologue, your self-talk, right? You say to yourself, oh, I'm terrible at this. Wait, are you really? (laughs) Are you? I'm not sure that's true. You know, so really start to question yourself. But part of it is to have spotters, exactly what you're saying, to have a neutral third party who is, who sees you clearly, who's willing to tell you the truth and who has your best interests at heart, right? Mm -hmm. That fair witness. And I think everybody needs those because we just can't always see ourselves clearly, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think the biggest breakthroughs that I've had in management and with my development is when someone has come in from the outside or I've asked for help from someone who's not, you know, in my day-to-day life, because you really need that neutral third party with, as you stated, your best interest in mind. Yeah, exactly. And who, who sees you clearly and is willing to tell you the truth. And one of the ways people are willing to tell you the truth is if you don't reject the truth when they tell it to you, you know, if somebody tells you the truth the first time and you go, you're crazy or that's bad, or I don't want to hear this, then it's like, all right, dude, I'm not going to tell you again. Why should I? So you really have to take it on board. Even if you don't agree with it, you have to take it on board if you want them to keep giving you their insight, right? Yeah. So someone who provides so many insights, how are you advising those people to take that feedback and then apply it? Oh, I love that question. So we talked about it already, but one of the one of the main things that we always talk to our clients about is their self-talk. I mean, you know, we all talk to ourselves all the time in our heads, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Continual monologue, you know? So the, the great thing to help people understand is that you can bring that monologue to your conscious awareness and manage it. And what happens when we don't bring it to our conscious awareness, it just kind of runs us. So we, we, if, we, if we're not conscious of it, we just believe it. We just take it as truth. So like, for instance, let's say you're a manager and you have somebody who works for you, and this is even more interesting, who comes to you and tells you that they think something that you're doing isn't right. And let's say that your first reaction mentally, you don't say this out loud, you just sit there and kind of nod, but inside you say, what the hell do you know? I'm your manager. You shouldn't even be saying that stuff to me, right? You're saying this and you believe it because it's your own voice in your head. So what I always encourage people to do is like, wait, when somebody tells you something you don't want to hear, notice what you're saying to yourself and then choose to say something else. 
you can choose to talk to yourself differently, right? So instead of saying, you're an idiot, don't say that. I don't believe anything you're saying because you're not me. You can say some version of, okay, wait, wait. I probably need to listen to this. Hmm, let me make sure I understand. And that just leads you in a whole different direction. Then you start asking these kind of curious questions. Wow, okay, help me understand that. What do you think that? What have you What have you seen me do that leads you to that belief? Oh, wow, okay, that's helpful. Are there other examples of it? Just lead you down a whole different path of learning, right? I love that. That is such practical advice. And I think we can all see ourselves in those shoes of rejection when we hear something yeah. that we don't want. Yes. And choosing to say something different rather than rejecting. Oh, you don't know what you're saying. That's not true. Uh, maybe you could answer that question a little bit differently in your head yes. and the feedback could serve you. Totally. And I think it's especially helpful for women because we're socialized in such a way that often the negative things we say inside our heads are about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Rather than saying you're an idiot, we say, I'm an idiot. <laughs> we say, oh, I maybe I can't do this. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm not as good as other people. Hold up, hold up. You can talk back to yourself. You can choose, wait, that's not true. I'm actually quite good at this. In fact, the one of my favorite examples is when I was starting my business, you know, 30 plus years ago, um, I was sitting in the waiting room of this prospective client who I know knew was a kind of powerful old white guy. And I was in my thirties, young woman in my thirties, and this is 35 years ago. So even more, you know, misogyny and whatever. So I'm sitting there and I noticed that I was just getting incredibly nervous. My hands were clammy and my heart was beating. I'm like, Ooh, ooh I know how to manage my self-talk. So I noticed what I was saying to myself and what I was saying to myself was, He'll probably dismiss me because I'm young and a woman. That's what I'm saying. And so, of course, I felt nervous, right? Mm -hmm. so I whipped out my little notebook. I wrote that down. I crossed it out. And I wrote, because the important thing is you have to substitute something that you also believe. You can't just make up stuff. You can't say, I'm fantastic and I love me because you don't know. So what I wrote down was, I have no idea how he'll respond to me. Right? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and I know I have value to offer. And I felt so, I know this word is overused. I felt so empowered. I knew both those things were true. I have no idea how he'll respond to me. And I know I have lots that's valuable to offer. Close my notebook. And I it was like magic. My hands dried up. My heart slowed down. We have a great meeting. I don't even remember what happened, whether we became a client or not, but my, it just changed my whole entry into that situation. And it was totally in my control, right? I am obsessed with just these two sentences. I think I can see the application before you're giving a sales pitch. Yes. I can see the application before you're going to a job interview. I can see the application before you're giving a speech or trying something new. You have no idea what is going to happen or how it's going to be received, but you know that you have something to offer of value. Precisely. And our, our, our negatively predictive self-talk is that somebody's going to hate us or think we're terrible, you know, just like, it's going to be awful, which we have no idea. And yeah. we don't have anything of value to offer. Neither one of which are true. Right. It's, it's such a breakthrough hearing you put it that way, because 
I've realized I've used that application, but haven't been able to put my finger on it to calm my nerves and do things beyond what I thought I was capable of. And mm-hmm. so I'm definitely wrapping that in a bow and just right. perfection. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Okay. So there's been so many moments in your career where you have had to persevere, especially as an entrepreneur with a successful business that has stood up for over 30 years. Can you share your thoughts on perseverance? Yes. So, so much of what I'm going to say to you has to do with how you talk to yourself. I'm convinced that 90% of our lives happen inside our head first, you know, so when I, when I've come up against something difficult or unexpected or challenging or disappointing in my life in any realm, but especially professionally, the first thing I do is just let myself feel whatever I feel. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm disappointed. I'm I just let it run. Right. And then I start talking to myself about what can I do? So rather than just let my, so there's, there's feeling, there's just pure feeling. I feel sad. I feel angry. I feel disappointed. I feel overwhelmed. Okay, great. But then I don't let my monologue start saying, and therefore I'm going to die. Therefore my business is going to go bust. It's like, stop, stop right here. Okay. You feel terrible. That's fine. You can feel terrible. Now, what are you going to do about it? And that's always the question I ask myself, what are you going to do about it? And that, and my second question after that is, because that always leads to something. Well, maybe I can, okay, how can you? Because then that's the real impetus question. Like, how can you? That That's when it starts to get practical. What are you going to do about it? All right, I'm going to think about it. Okay, how can you change that person's mind? Or how can you, like at the beginning of the pandemic, it was so great. My business partners and I, when we realized we locked everything down and we realized, holy moly, this is a whole new thing that nobody's ever, we, we had a conversation like, oh my God, this is terrible. I hope we don't all, you know, just, ah. and then we said, okay, what are we going to do about it? And we came up with the, our three kind of strategies to get through the pandemic and it, it worked, you know? So let yourself freak out and then figure it out. Yeah. Then what's next. So yeah. how do you, how do you avoid any missteps that would derail organizational change or the, and then if it's, if it's going in the wrong direction, how do you stop that derailment? Oh, I love that question. Well, first of all, you can't avoid missteps. There are always missteps. Mm -hmm. Even if you like in, you know, my latest book, which you know about the change from the inside out book, we talk about this. I, I talk about this process that we have for helping organizations and their people go through change. And one thing we always say to our clients is every change has unintended consequences. Don't even think of them as missteps. Every change has unintended consequences. That's why you have to stay attentive because you'll, you'll, if you're doing it right, you'll make a plan that integrates the human part and the mechanical part of change, and you'll start to unfold it. And hopefully you've gotten people, you're getting people on board enough and, and invest enough that they'll tell you when it starts to derail. And then you can overcome your initial, you know, will, wanting to reject what they say. So, oh, oh, wait, okay, tell what well, how is it happening? What's not working? How can we fix it? So you just have to stay very attentive, very curious, very open, and just have the assumption that things will go wrong. It's when people assume that they've got it exactly right and it's never going to go wrong. That's when they screw up, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You think you've laid the path and you kind of file it to the side (laughs) and then go about your own business. But what you said there, those two words, stay attentive. Yes. Stay total game changers. The fifth step of our change process, we call keep the change going. And it's after you, you've built the plan, you've built both the practical change plan and the, and the transition plan to help people mentally and emotionally get through the change. And you start to work the plan, but then don't walk away, stay attentive, keep the change going and, and just have ways of measuring the success of the change and if they're not, if it's be honest with yourself, if it's not attaining those measures, it's like, whoa, what's wrong? How is it not working? I got to ask some people. I got to get some people involved, right? Mm-hmm. How do you integrate the human and the practical? Because oh. you might see what's yeah, best yeah. for the organization, but people all process change differently. Okay. I love this question. Okay. So when I when I decided I wanted to write a book about change, we had already had a change practice for about 10 years and it seemed to work well. But what I noticed was that even if you have a good process and good, well-intended people, change is still really hard for people. And so the code I wanted to crack when I wrote this book is why is change so hard <laughs> and what can we do to make it easier, right? So I really started, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and I realized what the conclusion I came to is that Until pretty much this century, if you think about anybody's life, a human being's life, 300, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago, those lives would have been almost unimaginably stable to us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like if you live in Philadelphia 300 years ago, you almost certainly grew up in the same house that your parents grew up in and ate the same food and went to the same church and did the same stuff and read the same few books, just unimaginably stable through your whole life. And then your kids probably did the same thing. So that was life, just the stable, you know, everybody kind of does the same thing, you know. And when a big change came 300 or 500 years ago, it was almost always bad. Yeah, It was a flood or a famine or a war, right? Or a plague. Yeah. Right? (laughs) And so we're wired for thousands of years to think big change is bad. And the best bet, almost without exception, is to get back to the previous circumstances as quickly as you can. Mm-hmm. When, when we had food or when there wasn't four feet of water or you know, living room, right? So think about that's how we're wired. That's how human beings are wired, that when change comes, it's a terrible thing, right? Yeah. So, so how, do we, how do we become change capable? Exactly. So once I realized that, I thought, okay, so then what I got to figure out in the benefit of all people is what actually happens then mentally and emotionally when a human being does go through a change? How do we, when we overcome in effect our wiring, right? Okay. So you'll love this. So the first thing I figured out is that when a change comes at us, I'm not really talking about changes. That's our idea. Cause we're usually good with change. That's our idea. Well, when a change mm-hmm. comes at us, It turns out that human beings have almost always the exact same three questions about a proposed change. They want to know, what does this mean for me? (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. What impact is this going to have on me personally? Second, why is this happening? Because we have this preference for the status quo. So give me a really good reason. I'm not even going to listen to you. So why is this happening? And the third one is, what will it look like when it's done? Mm-hmm. 
Because, you know, we have, well, some of the research I did when I was writing the book is that most psychologists believe that most people's deepest fear is fear of the unknown. So if somebody says, here's this big change, and they don't tell you what it's going to look like, that's terrifying. That's like walking into a dark alley in the middle of the night, right? So people start asking these questions. And then this was where I got very interested. As we're at, even as we're asking those questions, remember we talked at the beginning of the conversation about assumptions. Because of this historical wiring we have that changes bad and hard, we assume, even as we're asking those questions, that the change, whatever it is, is going to be difficult and costly. Mm-hmm. And weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and difficult means I don't know how to do it. I'm not going to be able to do it. Other people are going to make it hard to do, right? And costly, I loved it when I figured this out. Costly means it's going to take from me things I value. And not just time and money, really important things like identity and relationships and reputation and experience, you know, it's going to take this stuff away from me. And weird just means like, oh, that's not, that's not cool. We don't do things like that. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm like, wow. Okay. So if you have that filter, when you're asking those questions, everything's just going to bounce off you. You're not even going to be able to hear the answers. Right. So then I noticed, well, so what happens when somebody actually does decide to make a change? What happens This is so fascinating. And this goes back to everything happens inside our heads. It's almost never because something external changes. It's because their mindset shifts. And the person starts to believe that the change could be, rather than difficult, could be easy or at least doable, right? That it could be more rewarding than costly and that it could be normal. The person starts to believe that. And you can tell by what comes out of people's mouths. It goes from, I'll never be able to do that. I don't know how to do that. I hate to do that. You know, I could probably learn that. I could could probably do that. You know, and I can kind of see how if we did it that way, it might be better. The clients would probably like it better. And, And normal is, and my friend Joe, who I really like and respect, he seems to think it's okay, right? Mm-hmm. So what, when someone's mindset has mostly shifted toward, oh, I can see how it could be easy or at least doable, rewarding, normal, then they're willing to take it on board. They're willing to learn and do the new behaviors, the new way of operating that the change requires and the change can occur. Mm-hmm. So that's the human side is at the same time that you're planning for the mechanical part of the change, you're helping people. You have a plan for helping people make that mindset shift. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I can't imagine what it would be like if as a, as a manager, you're having this discussion from the beginning and you're able to clearly combat those objections and that default mindset from your team to explain like, this is, here's what's in it for you. Here's why we're doing it. And in fact, this is what it's going to look like when it's done and, and really being able to take those negative assumptions and start to move those to the positive track from the beginning. Like you're getting people on board with your idea and the transition and imagine how much quicker it could happen if you're not encountering resistance at every step. Yes. You're totally getting this. And, and the other great thing then is that when you, when you understand this model, 
you expect that people will be unhappy and have concerns at the beginning. And then you don't categorize it as, oh, they're so resistant. They don't have a sense of urgency. It's just like they're responding to change like human beings respond to change. So when, when, as you start to explain it and the first thing somebody says is, oh, but it's going to be so hard. We really don't have time to do it. Then you just say, wow, you're really worried about the amount of time this is going to take. Yes. Okay. All right. Would you like me to tell you how we're going to plan for that? Oh, okay. I guess that's okay. If people first feel heard, like you're not dismissing their concerns, mm-hmm. then they're more ready to listen, right? Yeah. Empathy as a leader and really yes. applying what uh, the assumptions that your team might have and applying those inside your explanation and, and making time to listen to what they will say. And if you're already understanding where the objections might come from, you're going to have the answers to what, you know, those emotions that they're feeling around this proposed change. 100%. And I can't, I'll tell you another, this is, you'll like this. So as you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is what tools do you have to help people make that shift? Exactly what you're talking about from, Mm -hmm. I think this is going to be difficult cost saying weird to, oh, it could be easy, rewarding, normal, right? So my one of my partners, Jeff, made these up. I love them. They always work. We call them change levers, levers in the sense of force multiplier, you know? So the first one is increase understanding. If you are listening to this podcast, I know you are a busy professional. We can agree we are always looking for products that are convenient and make life easier. Mobot water bottles are one of these products. It's a water bottle and a foam roller in one. I use the water bottle at the gym, staying hydrated in boot camp and then flipping the bottle on its side at the end of class to quickly foam roll my legs. It helps with recovery and gets me back to work faster. Get yours at mobot.com and use the code leadershipisfemale, all one word, to get 15% off. Support Lonnie Cooper, the female founder of this product, and support yourself. This is a must-have wellness water bottle. At Leadership is Female, we are serious about supporting you in your career. That includes the tips to get you ahead inside your current organization or provide you with the next big opportunity in a new role. That's why we have partnered with Legacy Search, an executive recruiting firm specializing in mid to senior level executive searches across professional, collegiate, and minor league sports. Check out the openings listed at LegacySportsSearch.com or in our monthly Leadership is Female newsletter. Hint, if you have not signed up for the newsletter, head to LeadershipIsFemale.com. If you find a job listed at Legacy Sports Search that looks like it should be yours, email us at LeadershipIsFemale at gmail.com and we will introduce you directly to the opportunity. This is your career. Make the most of it. I don't know about you, but I love learning more about myself. If there's a quiz out there to help me better understand who I am, I'll take it. If there's a journal prompt, I'm using it. But how about a business that helps female leaders communicate effectively while inspiring confidence and trust in those you want to impact? Sign me up. Breakthrough Brands is unlocking clarity for women leading progress. They build leadership brands for women to discover what inspires them, define what drives them, and unlock how to share their brands with others. Do you want to gain clarity on your personal brand? Shoot me a note at leadershipisfemale at gmail.com 
or on Instagram, and we will introduce you to the women who will help you unlock your leadership brand. That's BreakthroughBrands.com. People in organizational change usually are just absolutely kept in the dark. They're not told enough. They're not told why. They're not given a rationale. They're not told, how will this affect you? Why is it happening? What's it going to look like? They're not given any of that context. So the more you can increase people's understanding that they they feel like they feel less like victims and more like participants, right? So that's tool number one. Tool number two, and this one's really interesting, is clarify and reinforce priorities. Because one thing that happens in change is people assume that everything is changing and they're prioritized. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing anymore, right? So like, for instance- Exactly where my mind went. Ah, there's so much more that I have to do. Exactly. So let's 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 use an example of let's say that um, a company is changing the the CR their CRM their customer relationship man- management you know tool, and they're going from let's just say Salesforce to something else, and they say this to the Salesforce and Salesforce like oh my god everything changed and they can say no 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 or we're still organized geographically you have the same clients you have the same sales targets. We're just changing the way we gather and use data. That's hugely soothing to get a more realistic sense of what's staying the same and what's actually changing, right? So that's the second tool. It's just to help make it clear to people what's staying the same, what's changing. All right. The third tool is my favorite. It's give control. Especially in organizations, people feel like they're completely have no control and change. They're just victims of the change, right? So whatever you can do as a leader to give that back to people, giving them a voice, giving them whatever choices you can give them. Like, when do you want to say this to your people? How do you want to say it to your people? Do you want to do it for these people first and then subsequently for these people? You know, you can only give them choices you can really give them, but there's always choices you can give and you can always ask for their input. What do you think about this? How can we make it easier? What's going to be particularly hard for your folks? So you just try to give them as much control in the change as you can. That really makes people feel better. And it feels more real, right? And then the last one is give support. And this is actually what we were talking about before. In any change, when you're proposing a change to somebody, the, the first and most important support to give them is just listen. You know, as leaders, often we're we're so impelled to reassure and, you know, explain. And it's like, no, 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 just listen. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do to just say, wow, you're really worried about this. Or you're not sure we're going to be able to do this. Or you, it sounds like from what you're saying, you, you're not even sure this is a good idea. That is so healing really it's a weird word but so healing to people to just say yes that is what i'm worried about you know and once people feel really heard then you can start to give them the more tangible support well can i show you the new work process and see what you think or can i hook you up with this guy who's done it before who could be your mentor people aren't ready to hear that until you've listened to them right Mm -hmm. and once you've listened to them then they're ready to take on the more kind of tangible support so good. Oh, okay. So we've talked about leadership. Okay. Change has been approved and it's time to enact and it spreads out yeah. to the team. Yeah. So yeah. what if you are the president of a company and you know that something needs to change and you need to make a pitch 
to the board of directors of said company. And you have someone on that board who is the ain't broke. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get that change initiated from the get go? I love it. You asked such great questions, Emily. Okay. So then to answer this question, I'm going to have to explain to you, we have this five-step process, which is which really aligns with that change arc I described to you. And the first two steps are basically, okay, so when there's a big change there, as you say, usually there's a small group of fairly senior people, let's say in this case, as you say, it's the president and a couple of his or her associates who know that something needs to change. So the first two steps of the process, the first one is clarify the change and why it's needed, right? So what actually are you, get clear about what you're talking about changes, changing. Way too many organizational changes, they start rolling out before they actually even know what it is. So what are you talking about changing? Why do you need to change it? So you can like create an elevator pitch for people. Then the second step is envision the future state. Why are you, you know, what what do you hope will happen as a result of this? What is going to change about the organization? And that that why has to be, you have to be able to say it in a way that's meaningful to people. Like if if you say, well, we'll be much more profitable, you know, all the people on the production line who are going to make $16 an hour, no matter how profitable you are, that's not meaningful to them. But if it if they're going to do less grunt work or the client's going to be happier, right? So what's this future going to be that's going to be helpful to everybody? So those are the first two steps. Then, and this goes to your question, in the third step, you figure out who's going to be the actual change team, you know, who's going to build and drive the change. It's usually not that most senior person. So I talk a lot in the book about how to build that team in a way that's going to work. But then also you think about, to your point, who are the other stakeholders, right? The key stakeholders, for instance, the chairman of the board, who's like, it's not broke, don't fix it. And you think about for each of those key stakeholders, and usually there aren't a hundred, usually there's 10, right? Mm -hmm. You think about where they're starting out, where they're starting out relative to the change. Are they really against, kind of against, neutral, kind of for, or really for? So let's say this guy, this probably, excuse me, but some older white guy who's the chairman of the board is going to be really against it. And the president and her associates know that. So, all right. So where do you need him to be for the change not to get derailed? You probably don't have, he probably doesn't have to be super supportive, but he at least has to be kind of supportive. All right. So once you figure that out, then you can figure out, okay, what is it going to take to move him? Like who, who's going to be the most, um, you know, the, the voice that will move him the most, who's going to have the most impact on him. What can we say to him that will be the most meaningful to him? That will be the most motivating to him. So you figure out for each stakeholder that you have to move, how are you going to move them? It's a very practical way to help them through their mindset shift, right? Mm -hmm. So let's pretend that um, the chairman of the board has the best relationship with the CFO, who's also an old white guy, and they've known each other for a long time. Okay, great. You're the one that's going to talk to him. And what are you going to say? What are you going to say? What are you going to listen? What kinds of reservations is he likely to have? How can you address those, right? So you make a 
plan for moving every key stakeholder, usually at least to neutral, but sometimes you have to move them to positive. And you do that while you're building the plan so that once you have the plant built and once you have the, the transition plan, also the helping people through plan built, and you start to implement the plan, it's not going to get shot down by any of these key stakeholders, right? Yeah, well, and you're also not adding six months on to the change because you were you were building the plan while you were rallying the troops. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So how do you train leaders and employees to thrive through change? Can you share three tips? We've talked about all these strategies, but what does the training look like when you are with these groups of people? So the first thing we tend to do is exactly what you and I have done. We help that we give them this frame for how change works, why it's hard and how you can become change capable, how you can teach yourself to move through change quickly. And then we we basically teach them how to manage their self-talk about change, how to see it differently. And so, so one of the things I was just talking to somebody else about this earlier today. So, you know, we all, as I said, we all talk to ourselves all the time. So we encourage leaders to notice how they talk to themselves about change. And it's it's pretty dramatic. Usually you, if people are honest with themselves, they notice that when a change comes at them, the first things they say are all about how hard and costly and weird it's going to be, right? First things they say in their head are like, oh, God, I don't have time to do this. And this is probably going to suck. And I hate this. And I hate this kind of change. And why can't we just do it the way we've done it all the time, Right. And once people start noticing that they're saying that to themselves, then th what you teach them is exactly what we talked about earlier. You can choose to talk to yourself differently. Mm -hmm. So instead of this is going to be terrible and I'll never learn to do it. Hold up, hold up. Wait, wait. How could I learn to do it? <laughs> how, how could I make this easier for myself and my people? And once you can get yourself start asking those curious questions, then your mind is already starting to shift, right? Yeah. And I think for me personally, reflection on the past change and its success is a huge yeah. booster yeah. for the future. Yeah. Survived it last time. And am I better off? Yes. 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 Okay. So we can do this again. And having that that patience and understanding that, okay, when we, after we move through this or while we're moving through this, it might be a little tough, but when we get to the other side, we're making this change for a reason. Remember what that intention was and know that we have survived and thrived in the past. It can help kind of shift your mindset a little quicker. So beautiful. I, if I could just snapshot exactly what you said in the last 30 seconds, that's the kind of self-talk leaders need to have. We did it last time. It worked. I feel confident that I can make this work. I've looked through the data and I know this is necessary. That's the kind of self-talk you need to have. And the great thing is that once you as a leader start becoming more change capable, start being able to consciously shift your mindset about change, it's like that, you know, put on your own mask before attempting to help others. Then you can, once, once, you, once you see, wow, I really can think and feel differently about change then you can start to help other people from a, from a, this is a weird phrase, but from a place of moral authority, mm -hmm. you know, you actually have made that change in yourself and you know that it's possible. Then when you turn to your people and say, I know this 
feels really hard and you're not up for it right now, I'm so sorry. And we need to do this. So let's think about how to do it. And I've been doing this for myself. Let me help, you know? So I I feel like I know the answer to this question, having spoken to you now for the, you know, better half of the hour, but what's been the most rewarding part of your work? Oh my gosh. You do know the answer to this. It's, (laughs) it's feeling like I've had a, a positive influence on people's lives. And I, Man, I just the other day, this happens to me quite often, and it always touches me. I some guy that I no idea who he is reached out to me on LinkedIn and he said, I just want you to know that I read your book Be Bad First when it came out six years ago, and it was transformative. It had a transformative impact on my life personally and professionally. And I was just rereading it and I realized I'd never thanked you. Oh my God, that's what I get to do for a living, you know? That's amazing. That's amazing. So (laughs) when you're not working and making a huge difference on people's lives, what does life look like for you? Oh, so much. So my two big things now are, as you know, we live part-time in Spain. So my my goal is uh, within the next two or three years, I've been working on it for years now, but within the next two or three years, I want to speak Spanish as well as I speak English so that I can do anything in Spanish that I can do in English. And, you know, learning learning language as an adult, especially as an older adult, is like I'm continually coming up against all my, it's, it's great. I love it. And I've gotten to the point where I can, you know, I'm we bought an apartment, we got insurance, I did, you know, I, I can actually do stuff in Spanish, which is great. We've made friends. So that's, and, and it's so wonderful because it's, I love language, you know, I'm a writer and, yeah. and just so fascinating to me how this other language works differently from and similar to English. And it also is fascinating to me how language is connected in a way I've never understood before how language is connected to culture, mm-hmm. that, that the how you say things in another language reflects the culture, the way, the assumptions that people make about it. It's just it's absolutely fascinating to me. So that's cool. So that's taking a big part of my time. And then also I'm writing a new book. I'm doing the research now, I'll probably start at the beginning of the year about how to get old well. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Yeah, that is amazing. Okay, so final four questions for you. Quick hitters. What is your top piece of advice for women to apply today so that they may level up tomorrow? This is really for humans and I think it's particularly appropriate for women. So listen deeply. Listen deeply. I'll say it again. Listen deeply. Listening is the foundation of all all human success. And manage your self-talk to be a supporter of yourself. Women, much more than men, as I said before, we say much worse things to ourselves than men do. It's socialization, I think. And, And notice what you say to yourself. And if you're saying something to yourself that you would never say to a friend, say something else. Beautifully stated. Yes. Beautifully stated. Okay. Where are you traveling to next? You're already in Spain. So where, where are you going next? 
Uh, I'm going to, we're going to Maine to have Thanksgiving with our older daughter and her husband and their two, the oldest of our, the two oldest of our six grandkids. And so that's our next thing. When we come home from Spain, then we're going to see them. Love that. Okay. What is your favorite song? That is an impossible question. You sent me that question earlier. I don't, I can't possibly answer that question. I have. Okay. Way- so you got to get pumped up. You're like, all right, I'm getting in the zone. I'm, I'm going to bang out 5,000 words. <laughs> what song are you listening to? This is a weird response, but it's true. Probably Mozart's Requiem. Love it. <laughs> I love it. Okay. And then finally, what is your favorite quote? I have a hundred thousand favorite quotes, but the one I want to leave you with, which I love for a whole variety of reasons, there was a guy named Branch Rickey, who was a very important guy in American baseball. Do you know about Branch Rickey? Yeah. Branch Rickey was the president of the Pacific Coast League for which I was a GM. Um, and yes, yes. Um, and no branch. You know, well. He brought Jackie Robinson into me. She brought the first Hispanic player. He's an amazing guy. Okay. So then this will resonate for you in a way I didn't even expect. So his favorite quote of mine is luck is the residue of design. And I love that because what it means to me is what people look at a person and say, oh, that person's so lucky. But what Ricky is saying is that person was able to take advantage of the positive circumstances because they knew what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Luck is the residue of design. Yeah. That's, I'm so happy you brought up that quote. Well, one, because Branch Rickey Jr. was somebody that I knew very well. Um, and two, luck is the residue of design. I hear so often, well, I got lucky. Well, I got lucky. Well, I got lucky. And I often I stop people and I say, no, you earned it. You yes. earned that luck. You did the right things to put yourself in the position to have earned that next opportunity. So it's such a good reminder. To have earned it and to know that it was the right thing to take advantage of. I mean, I feel like if you're clear about what you're trying to do and where you're trying to go, when that thing wanders by that can help you, then you know to take advantage of it, right? Yes. Yeah, you can throw your line in the water at just the right moment to capture that opportunity. Yes. Well, Erica, this has been phenomenal. I feel like this was a masterclass in self-talk and change management and we are all going to be better leaders uh, for oh. her hearing from you and definitely need to pick up your books. I will link those in the show notes. So thank you for being here on the Leadership is Female podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Time is your most precious resource, and it means the world that you spent it with us. Please help us reach more people who need to hear these interviews by hitting the subscribe button and the five-star rating on your iPhone. Do you know someone who could benefit from this interview? Please share it. Take a screenshot and post your Instagram stories, copy the link and share on LinkedIn, or text that link to your colleague. The Leadership is Female podcast exists to showcase female leadership in sports and entertainment and give you the tips to level up. We will extend a hand back to lead you forward. Extend the same hand by sharing this with someone who needs to hear it. One last thing. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at leadershipisfemale. Now, take this lesson and run. Let's go. Let's go.